If you've got a Bible there or some kind of device with the Bible on it, you could open back up to 1 Peter and we'll be working in this talk from 1 Peter chapter 2, just the first part of the second chapter. And there's an outline in the booklet as well which may help you follow along and see where we're going. Again, I'd like to read with you uh, through 1 Peter. And so we'll pick up the reading at 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 4. 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 4. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in Scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious, but to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone that causes people to stumble, and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message which is also what they were destined for. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Dear friends, I urge you, as foreigners and exiles, to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you again this afternoon for your word to us through the Apostle Peter. And we pray that as we reflect on it together that you would open our eyes to see who you have made us to be in Jesus, your chosen people, your holy nation, your treasured possession. And so you would lead us into lives that declare your praises and demonstrate your goodness. And we pray it for Jesus' sake. Amen. I don't know what it is about the human condition, but we seem to have this urge to want to build something big, don't we? As far as you go back in human history, you can find people building big things. Uh, all the way back in 2560 BC, they completed the Great Pyramid of Giza, 146 metres, the tallest and certainly the largest by far structure of its day uh, and for a couple of thousand years after that. You've got to come all the way through to the year 1311 uh, and what we now call the United Kingdom to Lincoln Cathedral when they topped it in height with 160 metres. A mere 14 metre improvement, but an improvement nonetheless. And then to keep jumping forward, and I'm, I'm skipping over a few things now, but you come to the modern era and we come to 1889, the Eiffel Tower in Paris. Any guesses? 300 metres, almost bang on. You keep coming forward, 1975, CNN, Tower in Toronto, almost doubled it, not quite 600, 553 metres. 
But then if you go to Dubai uh, and you go up the Burj Khalifa, you're almost twice as high as that. Not quite, but 829.8 metres. There's something about the human condition, isn't there, that, that right from as far back as we can trace it in history, uh, even to more recent times, we want to build something big, something tall, something majestic, something that captures the imagination, something we can look at and say, wow, I was part of building something huge. Uh, you understand that urge? And of course, it's not just in the competition to build the world's tallest tower, is it? In a whole bunch of different ways, we, we want to be where the action is. We want to be part of something significant. Don't we? We want to be caught up in something that really matters. And the problem for us in the church is that in the world's eyes, and I wonder if even sometimes also to us, what's happening here in the church seems small and weak and ultimately pretty insignificant. I'm not just talking about church buildings, of course. You feel it, don't you, in conversations at work or at uni or at school, where Christian perspectives say on same-sex marriage are treated as outdated or irrelevant. Uh, you feel it in another way when your kid's soccer team schedules the soccer match for Sunday morning and not even a thought has been entertained that that might be a clash for some people. That, that's my experience. Uh, the church is just doesn't even register. Uh, you feel it when Christian voices on Q&A on the ABC are marginalised or undermined or ridiculed. You feel it maybe when you go to a cricket match uh, or maybe to a, a concert and you're overwhelmed by the sheer noise and energy of 100,000 people packed into a stadium somewhere. And the place is buzzing Saturday night. And then you come to church Sunday morning, and well, frankly, you're a bit underwhelmed by the lack of noise and the lack of energy. In so many ways, compared to all the, the big, exciting stuff happening out there in the world and wise society, the, the church can feel small and weak. And insignificant. And the temptation when we feel like that, of course, is to just opt out of church. Maybe not blatantly or completely, but we still turn up on Sunday perhaps. We sign up for the obligatory rosters. We might even be part of a small group. But if we're honest with ourselves, I think very often church doesn't get the best of our attention. There are more exciting things happening at work or in family life than at church. And so when life is busy, Something has to go and, well, church is it. Again, maybe not blatantly, but maybe just we sideline it in our hearts and in our minds. And despite what we like to tell ourselves then, the trends of how we spend our time and the evidence of our bank statements reveal that church often for us really is a low priority. The mission of the church is just not our passion, perhaps. Well, if you feel those temptations and you see something of yourself in that, and I certainly see something myself in that, and I work for the church, uh, if you feel something of those temptations, then we're not alone. The Apostle Peter is writing to a church of exiles. That's what we saw he called them in chapter 1, verse 1. Most likely Christians have been expelled from Rome under the Emperor Claudius, relocated to Roman colonies in Pontus and Galatia and Cappadocia and Asia and Bithynia, what we call modern-day Turkey. Churches well away from the centres of power and influence. They're not in Rome, close to the emperor, with all the power and the influence that that brings. They're not in Jerusalem, with its glorious temple and its centre of Judaism. No doubt these exiles were feeling small and weak and insignificant on the margins of society, especially since they're also a church under fire, a church facing pressure and even persecution because of their commitment to Christ. So no doubt they 
like us, felt the temptation of just opting out of church, of giving their time and their money and their attention to things that seemed more significant or more powerful or more exciting or more socially acceptable. But God has good news for them through the Apostle Peter. And since we face some of the same temptations, it's good news for us as well. And the good news in this passage is this, that even though the church may seem small and weak and insignificant, it is, in fact, the single largest, most significant, most powerful project the world has ever seen. Let me show you that. I want to encourage you with that news from this passage uh, in 1 Peter. I want to give you reasons to stick with the church and not just to stick with it begrudgingly but to throw yourself in to the life of the church and its mission Uh, and then towards the end I want to explore some of what it might look like to do exactly that. And so the first reason to throw yourself into the church's life and mission is that the church is God's temple, God's great building project where God lives in his world. Look at verse 4. As you come to him... A living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. The church, Peter says, is a spiritual house. It's a temple. It's God's temple. It's where God makes himself present in the world. In fact, all the way through the Bible, God has been in the business of having temples built as the place where he dwells among his people to bless them so that they can be a blessing to the world. Think all the way back to the Garden of Eden. The Garden of Eden is a kind of temple, a holy place full of gold and precious stones on top of a mountain with rivers flowing from it where God dwelt with Adam and Eve. Uh, You fast forward a little bit and you come to Moses and the Israelites in the wilderness uh, and the tabernacle that God commanded Moses to build, a a holy place where priests offered sacrifices so that God could dwell amongst his people even despite their sin and bless them so that they could be a blessing to the world. And then you fast forward a little bit further uh, and you find Solomon building a temple in Jerusalem, a holy place where God dwelt with his people and heard their prayers, and received their sacrifices, and blessed them so that they could be a blessing to the world. This is the story all the way through the Bible. In the garden with Adam and Eve, with Moses in the wilderness, with Solomon in the land, all the way through the Bible, God has dwelt with his people in temples. But now, Peter says, now that Jesus has come, now that the Spirit has been poured out, the temple where God lives is not some tent in the wilderness, or not some building in Jerusalem made out of stones, It's you. It's you, the Christian community. Verse 5, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house, a temple, to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. You see, God's temple is no longer a physical structure made of lifeless stones, but a living, breathing, human community. But notice who's doing the building here. You yourselves, Peter says, verse 5, like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house. You notice Peter speaks in the passive voice. He's speaking not about what believers do to build God's temple, but about what God does to build them. Yes, you've come to Jesus, he says, but you did that because God has picked you up and built you into the wall of his temple. 
This whole church thing is God's great building project, first and foremost, not ours. And since it's God's building project, it's no surprise that he's building his church his way according to his specifications. And so here's the key. He's building his church on a rejected cornerstone. Verse 4, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious. And then again, verse 7, quoting from Psalm 118, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The cornerstone is that first stone that you lay when you're building a temple. It's the stone that sets the pattern for the rest. And Peter's talking about Jesus, of course. Jesus, who was chosen by God, precious to him, a living stone, living because he's been raised from the dead. Jesus, the cornerstone, who sets the pattern for the rest of God's temple, Jesus, who was rejected by people. You see, God is building his church. He's building it his way. And the precious living cornerstone he's chosen to lay is rejected by the builders and betrayed and despised and mocked and crucified and small and weak and seemingly insignificant. And if he's the cornerstone the one on which the whole structure is built, the one which sets the pattern and the direction for the rest, what does that tell you about the destiny of the church? God is also building his church out of a rejected people. People are being cast out of Rome, in this case, who are far from the centres of power. People who are exiles. People who in the world's eyes are small and weak and insignificant. And in fact, again, when you trace the story all the way through the Bible... This is how God has always worked. He built his church not in the centres of power in Egypt under Pharaoh. No, he took them out into the middle of nowhere, in the wilderness, on the way to the promised land. He built his church not in the palaces of kings and princes, but among the exiles by the rivers of Babylon. He built his church not in the Roman capital, but in far-flung Palestine, among a despised race, through a rejected Messiah, by a shameful death. Yes, you're not in Rome. Yes, you're not in Jerusalem. Yes, you're not at the very centre of power in Australian society. You're exiles, Peter says. And so you might feel small and weak and insignificant because in the world's eyes, that's what you are. And you might wish that you were living and working where the action is because in the world's eyes, you're irrelevant or a nuisance or worse. But the truth is, The living God of all creation is building his church, constructing his temple, erecting the most magnificent, glorious structure the world has ever seen right here in your midst, even though the world can't recognise it. And so in Pontus and Galatia and Cappadocia and Asia and Bithynia and Tugranong and Dixon and Belconnen and even Gungahlin, God is building his temple. Don't expect the world to recognise its significance or to celebrate its significance or to cheer from the sidelines. Don't expect to be at the centres of power, being hailed and recognised as the greatest institution. No, that's, that's not the way God is building his church. But also don't be fooled into thinking that even though from the world's point of view it doesn't look very significant what God is doing here, Don't be fooled into thinking, therefore, it's not significant. Because the reality is, this is where the living God is at work. Right here. 
There's more, of course. God's church is not only his new temple, not only where he has chosen to make himself present in the world as he lives with his people by his spirit. A second reason to throw yourself into the church's mission is that God's church is the new humanity. This is a startling claim. This is the place where God is making people new. Look at verse 9. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvellous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is all Israel language, isn't it? If you know your Old Testament, this would be ringing some bells. that's, That's really familiar. Where did God speak like this before? A kingdom of priests, a chosen race, a holy nation, God's treasured possession. This is all straight out of Exodus 19. It's what God declared to Israel at Mount Sinai as they gathered there at the mountain. They were slaves in Egypt, you remember. But God reached out to them with his mighty hand and his outstretched arm and he ripped them out from slavery under Pharaoh's thumb. And he brought them out through the Red Sea uh, after the ten plagues. He brought them through the wilderness. He brought them to himself at Mount Sinai. And he declared to them, you are my chosen people. You're a kingdom of priests. You're a holy nation. You're my treasured possession. The whole earth is mine. But I've chosen you, Israel. And now Peter says, you exiles in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, Gangalan." I've chosen you. You are my treasured possession. The church is Israel renewed. The church has taken up that role in the world by coming to Jesus, the living stone, where the heirs of those promises. But there's another layer here as well. This is not just Israel language. This is also Adam language. Adam was a holy person chosen by God as his representative in the world. And then he sinned. Um, He was a king called to exercise dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over every living thing that moves upon the earth. He was a priest called to stand in God's presence in the garden temple of Eden. He was God's treasured possession, the crowning work of God's creative genius. Uh, And now Peter says, you exiles in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, Gangalan, you've come to Jesus... And you are heirs of those promises too. You take up that role. So the church is not only Israel renewed, it's humanity renewed. This is God renewing his purposes for the human race. The world will have you believe that the church is at best a sect that should have little or nothing to do with mainstream society or a club for those with religious inclinations or a niche group for those with particular spiritual needs or an outdated institution that perhaps once had some significance for our society but is on the wane. But all of those missed the mark by a mile. In the church, God is rebuilding the human race from the ground up. Do you see that? In the church, God is rebuilding the human race from the ground up. The church is God's new humanity. It's not that the church is made up of better people, of course. <laughs> Uh, You know that well, and I'm not talking about the person next to you. No, we were in darkness, Peter says, until God called us into light, verse 9. We were lost in sin, deserving God's judgment until God showed us mercy, verse 10. 
The church is God's new humanity, not because it's made up of better people, but because of God's wonderful mercy in which he's reached out to us and rescued us like he rescued Israel with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. He's brought us up out of slavery, not to Pharaoh, but out of our slavery to sin into the new life of his kingdom. He's forgiven our sins. He's sprinkled us with Jesus' blood. He's qualified us to stand in, in his presence and to take part in his kingdom. And so we can, as Peter says in verse 5, be a holy priesthood, all of us, who offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. You see, the church is the one community in the world, the only community in the world, where God is taking people who are distorted and corrupted and downtrodden and broken because of their sin, their sin and others' sin. The church is the one and only community in the world where God is taking those people, connecting them to his son and making them new, enabling them to stand tall, enabling them to grow up and become fully human, to live the kind of lives that God always intended, to become, as Peter puts it here, a kingdom of priests who live in God's presence and are not ashamed. You might have heard what happened at Charlestown, South Carolina on the 17th of June 2015, a couple of years ago now. I mentioned it briefly yesterday or this morning uh, when a young white supremacist walked into a a Bible study, uh, just a group of eight African Americans uh, in their church doing Bible study uh, early morning one day. He had a gun concealed under his jacket and he sat with them for about an hour while they did Bible study. And then towards the end of the time together, he opened up his jacket and he pulled out the gun and he opened fire and he shot them dead. It's just astounding. What do, you, what do you do with that? What you might not have heard is that at the initial hearing, it was only a week or so later, the families of those who had been so brutally murdered stood up one by one and with tears in their eyes facing this guy who had shot their loved ones, said, what you did was wrong, but I know that God can forgive you, and I'm ready to forgive you too. Just astounding. Here are people who have every reason in the world to be bitter and twisted and angry. Every reason in the world. Generations of racism that they've lived through, passed on from parents to children. And now this, and now that, where they stand up and offer forgiveness in the name of Jesus. Think, what is going on there? That is something remarkable in the world that you will not find anywhere else. And what's going on is that God is taking people, connecting them to his son, and making them new, transforming them from the inside out enabling them to be the kind of people that he always envisaged when he created Adam. And that's what God is doing everywhere in the church all around the world. It's what he's doing right here, isn't it? That's your story. That's my story, not in the same dramatic way. But God is making us new. He's taking twisted, broken people and sorting us out. The church is God's new humanity. And this temple building, this life-renewing work is never going to be glamorous in the eyes of the world. And I'd probably even suggest that if church life starts to look glamorous, there's a good chance it started building on some other foundation than the rejected cornerstone. It's not glamorous work, the life of the church. 
but it's work that is right at the very heart and centre of what the living God is doing in the world. Building his spiritual house. Making his people new. And so when you speak about Jesus to people at work or at school and you get laughed at or maybe just quietly sidelined, when you hold on to God's teaching in his word about marriage and you get opposed and ridiculed, when you spend yourself for 10 snotty-nosed kids on Sunday morning at Sunday school (laughs) instead of sleeping in, when you give up your Friday nights to play your part in the work of the youth group when you could be out at the party, when you take the time to visit the oldies at church and encourage them and build them up in Christ, when you patiently use your gifts in God's service week in, week out, year in, week out, without anyone noticing, without any applause, without plenty of Facebook likes, but you just keep plodding away, take heart. Chances are you are right at the heart of what God is doing in the world at work through you as he builds his spiritual house And what you're doing is offering spiritual sacrifices that are acceptable to God through Jesus. Won't look glamorous. Probably will look small and weak and insignificant. But it's anything but. So don't opt out. Throw yourself in. Because when you do that, you're not throwing yourself into some irrelevant social club or some niche interest group. You're right in the middle of the action of what the one true and living God is doing in the world. You are joining the biggest building project, the best building project the world has ever seen. So how do you throw yourself in? What does it look like? What is God's mission for the church? Well, it's simple, really. God calls his church to declare his praises and to demonstrate how great he is. So let's take those one by one. Let's think about declaring God's praises first. Look at verse 9. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. In our production and consumption-obsessed society, where economic efficiency is a god, and where activities that don't have a measurable output can be seen as a waste of time, it's hard to put a value, isn't it, on gathered worship... Sunday morning, Sunday afternoon, gathering together with God's people to praise him, it can seem like an irrelevance. The economist might ask, what good are we contributing to society? What service are we providing to society when we gather as church like this? You're wasting a whole Saturday being here. I can think of a number of goods that this gathering actually does contribute to society and we could even uh, put a monetary value on them if we had the right metrics, but, but that's not the point, right? Because contributing to society... Loving our neighbours, while it's vitally important, is only the second most important commandment. And the most important commandment, as Jesus taught us, is to love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. We were created to love God, to worship him, to sing his praises. And so at the heart of the church's mission in the world is that the church is called to be a worshipping people a people who declare God's excellencies, who sing his praises in the midst of a watching world, who tell the world at the top of our lungs, for anyone who listen, how great God is. C.S. Lewis once wrote that the world is actually full of praise, if you open your eyes to it. Husbands praising their wives, sports fans praising their favourite teams, readers praising their favourite books, 
watches praising clever shows, students praising their schools and their universities, or maybe not, stamp collectors praising their favourite stamps. There's all sorts of praise that goes on in the world. And God's purpose of building his church is to cover his world with communities of people who declare his praise. That's central to why God planted this church here in Gungalan, that there would be a people here or there, <laughs> there, in this part of God's world who regularly gather and tell the world at the top of their lungs how great God is, who sing his praises. This is central to why God has planted churches down the road in Tuggeranong and up the highway in Sydney and all over the place. God is filling the world with little communities of his people who will praise him, who will declare how great he is. Of course, God didn't just redeem us to declare his excellencies when we gather together on Sundays. He redeemed us to declare his praises full stop and, and so we can do that all the time, can't we? Over coffee or lunch, at the sidelines of a sporting match, in our Facebook posts in our contributions to public discussion in the media, uh, we've been rescued out of darkness into the light (laughs) to declare God's praises and to call other people to join us in praising him too. John Piper puts this really well, I think, in a book on global mission. Uh, And you open it up, this book about taking the gospel to all nations, telling the good news to people from all around the world, and you expect it to start talking about missions, and he starts like this. Missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. Oh, why did I pick up this book then? Well, he says, worship is. Missions exists because worship doesn't. Worship is ultimate, not missions, because God is ultimate, not man. When this age is over and the countless millions of the redeemed fall on their faces before the throne of God, missions will be no more. It's a temporary necessity. But worship abides forever puts it well doesn't it see when we tell the good news about jesus and we call on people to repent of their sins and put their trust in him we're really calling on them to stop giving other things the highest praise in their lives and to join us in praising god above all but it's true isn't it if you go to one of those football grand finals what are the concerts with hundreds of thousands of people the sheer energy and the power can be overwhelming and you turn up at church the next morning Uh, And there's, what, perhaps 200 people singing God's praise. And church can feel small and weak and insignificant. And and so we've got to remind ourselves, you've got to remember that church each week is, in one sense, choir practice. Can I put it like that? (laughs) Choir practice for that great gathering that you see in the book of Revelation of countless millions of the redeemed drawn from every tribe and people and nation and language falling on their faces and declaring God's praises And so when we declare God's praises and when we call on others to join us in doing that, we're rehearsing, really, for that great day. Participating already, in a sense, in the praise of heaven, but rehearsing also for the fullness of it when Jesus comes. But that's only the first part of our job. The second part of the job is also crucial. The church shows the world how great God is by declaring his praises, but also by demonstrating his goodness. Look at verse 11. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. 
You see, God's strategy for displaying his glory in the world is not bigger buildings or flashier websites or glossier marketing. There might be a place for some of those things. But God's strategy is none of them. God's strategy, the real action in God's mission in the world is the good lives of his people. It's your life, our life together. Make no mistake, this is a spiritual battle. Did you hear what Peter said? Abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Strong language, isn't it? You see, there's a lie about in our culture that true humanity is found in self-actualization, in expressing yourself. That's how you really become human. You give way to any and every desire. You experience everything you can possibly experience. You have the fullness of your humanity exposed. And so in our society, to say no to any desire, no matter what it is, is to repress yourself, isn't it? And therefore to cause yourself damage. And those who advocate any kind of self-denial are to be silenced because what they say is evil. This is what we're hearing. But the truth is, sinful desires wage war against your soul. They corrupt you. They distort you. They turn you in on yourself. They make you less than fully human. They dehumanize you. And God has rescued us out of that darkness. He's brought us into his light to free us from that corruption, to straighten us out, to help us stand tall, to make us fully human. And so the church is called to live such good lives among, among the pagans that even when they speak against us as evildoers, they'll see our good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. In fact, God's design is that the world should look in on the church like, like the nations were meant to look in on Israel and see the way we live in the church and say, there's something about what happens in there that's weird. It's different from how we live out here, but there's something about it that's weird, but there's also something about it that's kind of attractive. There's also something about, I can't put my finger on it, but, it, but it's good. The, the way they forgive those who hurt them. The way they love their enemies. The way they welcome children and respect the aged. The way they keep sex for marriage. The way they're generous with their money. The way they're patient with the socially awkward. It, it's weird, but there's something about it. I, I can't deny it, it's good. That's God's design for the church in his mission. There's this wonderful scene in C.S. Lewis's Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe, maybe you've read the book or seen the movie, uh, where the Pevensey kids come into Narnia uh, and the wicked white witch has cast her evil spell over the place uh, and so it's cold and dark and frosty and snowy uh, and grey and it's, it's always winter and never Christmas. And there's this beautiful scene where the Pevensey kids are walking along with the beavers. Do you remember the one? Uh, and the dwarf and the wicked white witch are also walking along. There's two parties walking through cold, dark Narnia. And both groups start to notice something. That, uh, the the grey clouds have parted and blue sky appears. Uh, and the sun comes out. Uh, and, and the frozen river begins to melt so you can hear it flowing again. Uh, and little pockets of green start appearing in the snow because the grass is growing up and, the, and then flowers start to bud. And then, what's that? That's birds chirping. Uh, and the wicked white witch is walking with one of her henchmen, the dwarf, uh, and he says, he notices, he says, what's going on? This, this is some kind of Thor. And the wicked white witch, who knows better, says, oh no, this is no Thor, I tell you. This is Aslan's doing. Aslan is on the move. Right? It's, it's a beautiful picture of what God is doing in the world. 
through the good news about Jesus, by the work of his spirit, as people hear it and believe, are united to Christ and join his people, you get little pockets of green in a cold, dark world, little pockets of life. That's New Life Presbyterian Church, right? It's in your name. (laughs) A little pocket of life in this city. And the world's meant to look in on your common life together and say the way they do things in that church, it's it's weird. (laughs) There's some stuff they do that I don't agree with. But it's good. I like it. (laughs) Tell me more. I want to know about it. And you can see the implication that has for our life together as God's people, right? It means people have to see the insides of church life. What does Peter say? They'll see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. So here's my question for you. How many unbelievers see the insides of your church life? How many people see the insides of your relationships with other Christian people? Too often we live in these little Christian ghettos, don't we? Where our relationships with Christians are almost hermetically sealed from our relationships with non-Christian people. And we have this set of Christian friends at church and a set of non-Christian friends at work or at school or whatever. But Peter assumes there's overlap between the two. uh, That our good lives will be lived among the pagans, he says. So that they'll see our good deeds. So how visible is your church life? Uh, And if it's not very visible, here's a good project for you. How can you open it up? How can you invite people in? I want to put it to you, the more non-Christian people who see the insides of your life together, the better. And as soon as I say that, usually people say, oh, but if they see the insides of our life, they'll also see the sin. They'll also see the way that we don't live out perfectly what Jesus commands us. And I say, yep, what better opportunity to show them what to do with sin and how to take it to the Lord and receive his forgiveness and say, you can have that too. It's a beautiful opportunity. This is God's mission through the church in his world. It starts with the simple things, right? I, I remember when, I was, when our firstborn son was born, I was teaching in a high school. Uh, and I turned up at school each day with hot lunches, every day for four weeks. And my colleague sitting at the next desk said, gee, your wife is amazing. She's just given birth to a baby. <laughs> and she's cooking your hot lunch every day. And I said, oh, no, she is amazing, but she hasn't cooked for four weeks. Where's the food coming from? Are you cooking? No, I'm not cooking. So where's the food coming from, she says. Oh, people at church, they just brought it around and stocked our freezer and it keeps going. I mean, that, that was really remarkable, the church we were part of, but for four weeks we didn't cook. And her jaw just dropped. I said, what kind of a community does that? She'd never seen anything like it. And yet in our church community it was just kind of normal. That's what you do, looking after somebody. You see, people need to see the insides of our church life so they can see what God is doing here. And when they do, then they'll begin to ask questions. They'll ask us for a reason for the hope that's in you. And then you can point them to Jesus. And say, oh, this is why we live that way. It's because of him. So do you want to be part of something big? Do you want to be right in the middle of the action? Uh, don't opt out of church life and its mission. Throw yourself in. Because God is building his church and it's his new temple, his most magnificent building project, his new humanity, the means he has chosen right here to display his glory to the world. And because it's God's building project, we can be sure he's going to complete it. In fact, he's given us a picture of that completion. Do you remember the vision in Revelation 21 and 22 of the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God? 
When you look closely at the description of it, it's got streets paved with gold, uh, it's got jewels on the walls, it's the same dimensions as the temple. It's kind of this massive temple coming down out of heaven. And then you look more closely again and you realise it's got foundations in the names of the 12 tribes of Israel uh, and gates named after the 12 apostles. It's both a temple and the people of God all together. It's these two images that we have in 1 Peter here, a temple and a new people bound together. It's a picture of the church in all its glory, dazzlingly bright, And apart from God himself on the throne, it's the most spectacular thing you've ever seen. And by God's grace, we're in it right now. So don't opt out. Throw yourself in. This is where the action is.